0: Welcome to this podcast episode of Narcissists in Divorce: The Narcissist Trap. I'm Dr. Supriya McKenna. I'm a former family doctor, but my life's true work is working with people who have fallen prey to narcissistic relationships of any kind, but I'm particularly busy in the area of divorce. Over the last few years, I've been very proud to become an Amazon best-selling author on the subject of narcissism, and my brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce: From Love-Locked to Leaving, is out right now on Amazon, as an audiobook, in paperback and on Kindle. That's the first book in the Narcissists in Divorce series and the follow-on to that will be out in the late summer and is called From Leaving to Liberty. And please do note that these books and this podcast are equally applicable to anyone leaving a serious intimate relationship with a narcissist, whether they are married or not. I also have a book out called The Narcissist Trap, The Mind-Bending Pull of the Great Pretenders. And that book might be useful in helping the people around you who are supporting you to understand more about what happened to you and about narcissism generally. I'm also the co-author with British divorce lawyer Karen Walker of Narcissism and Family Law, a practitioner's guide. And between us, Karen and I have trained Thousands of family law professionals in narcissistic personality disorder, including judges, lawyers, mediators, and social workers. For further narcissism resources from me, please do visit thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com, and that web address has the doctor fully spelt out.
1: Right, so uh, today, not just one guest, but two. Uh, we're talking about narcissistic uh, personality uh, disorders. And I'm joined firstly by uh, Dr. Supriya McKenna, uh, former GP who now focuses on helping people to recognise whether they've been in a narcissi- narcissistic relationship. And- and supports and guides them through the separation and divorce process. She's also an educator and writer on the subject of narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, Supriya, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you for having me. No problem at all. Supriya, you hear the term narcissist bandied around all the times these days, but it's actually a very specific condition. Can you tell us a bit more about what narcissism actually is and what it isn't?
0: Mm, yes. Well, The term narcissism, if you're using it correctly, is actually talking about narcissistic personality disorder or NPD. And that's real and it's diagnosable. So the word narcissism is actually just a shorthand term, which describes all the patterns of behaviour that people with narcissistic personality disorder exhibit. So you're not so much describing the person, because obviously every person is unique and no one can be described in in one word. But what you're actually describing is just a typical set of behaviour patterns within certain people. So Unfortunately, um, the word narcissist is is not only overused these days, but it's often used incorrectly. So a lot of people say that someone is a narcissist if they're a bit vain or a bit selfish or or a bit of a drama queen, you know, if they take a lot of selfies. Um, And that's a big oversimplification. And actually, it undermines the seriousness of what narcissism actually is, because in reality, narcissists, um, and by that I mean those people who have narcissistic personality as a big part of their personalities, in reality, they can be controlling, uh, manipulative. They have a sense of entitlement and they actually engage in covert emotional abuse and many other things which you just wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of. Now, also, other people might tell you that narcissists are intrinsically evil or bad uh, and that they're the cause of all domestic abuse and everything that's wrong with the world. And of course, those things also aren't true. And, and that's not helpful either. So although you wouldn't want to get tangled up in a relationship with someone who has NPD, they're not actually the devil incarnate. They're not 100% bad and not all domestic abuse um, is as a result of NPD. There are many other causes it's important to say um, that what makes things hard is that narcissists rarely present the outside world as abusers um, in real life they're incredibly difficult to spot uh, they fly under people's radars for literally years and even decades actually um, even people that they're very close to so I think the key point here is that although narcissists behave in ways which are abusive towards others they usually do it in ways which were very very subtle um, certainly at the beginning of the relationship so it's it's incredibly easy to get sucked into a relationship with a narcissist right that's actually quite um uh, how can i put that uh, quite a, a, a well-qualified way of describing
1: narcissism actually um now how common is narcissistic personality disorder um i'll be honest with you until i was chatting to um ali myers who i interviewed about the subject a couple of weeks ago um i'd never really heard of it as a personality disorder but uh, by all accounts it is quite um well it's quite a common disorder.
0: It is I mean figures vary um, and obviously more work actually needs to be done on this but the general consensus says uh, that it's around one in 20 adults that have NPD. Some studies say less some studies say more it's important to realise that one narcissist has many people orbiting around them. They tend to have a fan club um, revolving around them. So one narcissist will be affecting several people at any one time. And most of these people won't even be aware uh, that they themselves are just one of many people in their orbit. And narcissists often have a way of making each person revolving around them actually feel um, like they're really important to them, when in fact they're just actually using them for their own ends. So... I think the point I'm trying to make here is it's actually a bigger problem um, than you might think from that one in 20 statistic. Um, And if you haven't uh, been directly affected by a narcissist yourself, and that could be anybody, the narcissist could be your neighbour, your friend, your mother, um, your boss, your other half, your, your sibling, it could be anybody. But and you will definitely know someone who has been adversely affected by a narcissist. Because as I said, each narcissist is affecting many people at any one time. I see. So you see, the thing is, when you, when you listen to someone
1: who understands the subject talking about it, it makes you sort of like question yourself and thinking, well, have I actually been involved with someone like that? And maybe even haven't realised that I have been.
0: Mm, that's very common indeed.
1: Yeah. So, um, what is it about narcissists then that makes it so easy to be sucked in by them? I mean, is it fair to say that they can be very charming, for instance?
0: Yeah, very much so uh, on the surface, and and that's why it's so easy uh, to fall for them. Um, I always I always think about um a Taylor Swift lyric, um, which it always reminds me of narcissism, and and she says, "Darling, I'm a nightmare dressed as a daydream." You might know it, David. Um. Uh, I I hate to admit it on air, but yes, I (laughs) (laughs) am. But it's such an excellent description of a narcissist because they are, they're the daydream on the surface and they're a nightmare underneath. Because how a narcissist appears on the surface is actually not how they are underneath. So whatever their outward persona might be, Mm -hmm. And it might be Mr. Nice Guy or Miss Funny or Miss Caring, Mr. Charismatic, Mr. Larger Than Life. They can, they can all be very different on the surface, but underneath, on the inside, they actually all feel very unworthy. So they might seem confident on the outside, but this persona is actually a false persona. It's been built by them to hide their very low self-esteem and their sense of worthlessness and inadequacy. And they're hiding this from the world, but they're also hiding it from themselves because they don't want to face these feelings themselves. And, and these false personas that they put out to the world, they're very convincing and they can be really, really attractive. And that's how they suck people in. And it's its almost as if they need other people to believe In these false personas so that they can believe in them themselves. So the problem is that they need constant attention from other people to keep the false persona going. And this is key, actually. Um, This is why they, um, why they do the things they do. So when they don't get the constant attention, their false persona actually disintegrates and they're then forced to see themselves how they really are. And then, and, and actually forced to feel their true feelings about themselves. And that results in some pretty terrible behavior. Um, it's in a way
1: it does remind me of my own sort of personal, um, background in, um, addiction. Because when you are actively in addiction, your whole life is one complete and total lie because you uh, are putting out an outward persona that you're absolutely fine. Life is wonderful. No problem at all. And yet the only thing that you really, really care about is your uh, drug of choice, your addiction of choice. And once that is taken away from you, you basically the whole mask that you put up just crumbles.
0: You know, it's really interesting that you say that because um, some people say that narcissism um, is actually an addiction to a thing called narcissistic supply. And so you know, I was talking about how people need external validation um, to keep their mask up. So they need other people to believe in the mask to keep that false persona alive. Yeah. Um, and that external validation, that's that's actually called narcissistic supply. Um, and everything uh, that a narcissist does is actually driven by this need to secure narcissistic supply, to secure this external validation. So it's, it's like a bucket with a hole in it. No matter how much narcissistic supply they get from others, they're always going to need continual topping up up. Um, And so that's actually very much like an addiction in that you need more and more of the substance to get the same effect. And they need more and more external validation. They're kind of addicted to the external validation to get get the effect. And the effect for them is keeping that false persona up. So there there is a, a parallel there to be drawn with any type of addiction.
1: As a recovering addict myself, I can, listening back to what you're just saying, I can see certain traits in my personality as was back then. And to a point, possibly in my personality now, because even though I am recovering from addiction, I am still an addict. I'm just an addict who doesn't choose to pursue his addiction at the moment.
0: Mm-hmm. But you've taken that that choice. You've made that step, yeah. and I think that with narcissism, actually, the difference lies in that um, you know you were aware enough to, to to work out what was going on and to, to put a stop to it. But with narcissism, it's very diff, diff, different in that narcissists tend not to have um, a great deal of awareness, and actually, their narcissism works in their favour. So they don't want to stop being a narcissist, as as it were. And of course, it's also a wiring. It's it's a hard wiring in their brain. So it's very very difficult for them to stop. It's very difficult for for any substance abuser to stop but it's it's difficult for a narcissist in fact it's virtually impossible um, because it's a kind of hard wiring rather than an actual substance if you see what i mean a substance addiction yeah i totally understand that now uh,
1: what are the different types of narcissists with uh, regards to how they look to the outside world i mean i'm presuming they don't all just come in one you know sort of like clone you know with everything there are always different types of stuff
0: absolutely um And I mean, they do all look very, very different on the surface, but they do tend to fall into one of four groups um, with regards to how they appear to the outside world. But um, they can be more than one type at any one time, or they can be mostly one type at one time and another type at another time. So it's a bit confusing. You you don't always see um, a a very clear picture. The the types aren't set in stone and they're, they're kind of fluid. But the type that most people would think of when talking about narcissists um, are the exhibitionist narcissists. And they're the ones who are charismatic and they're larger than life and they're gregarious and they act as if they're superior. And they might right. say things like, um, I'm an expert at this, or I'm not ordinary. And um, Donald Trump, of course, um, he, mm. he was a great example of this. Um, he'd be constantly making grandiose claims like, uh, nobody understands science better than me. I don't know if he actually said that, but it's the sort of thing he would yeah. say, nobody understands science better than me. Be- and because other people actually believe that this person, these, pe- these types really are superior, they, they can reach really um, high kind of positions of power. And actually, Donald Trump um, actually falls into the next category uh, rather well, too. Um, and these are the devaluing narcissists. OK, so these guys, uh, they need to inflate their own egos by putting other people down. So they're constantly comparing themselves to other people and criticising others Um calling them names, discrediting them. And they do this to make themselves feel superior to them. So if you think about Donald Trump, he would often call people names. Um so he famously called uh, Joe Biden Sleepy Joe, for example. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And and if you if you fell out of favor with him, he obviously wouldn't hesitate to publicly humiliate you. And that was the the devaluing narcissist side of him. Right. Um there is another couple of categories though. Um and these ones are much, much harder to spot. Um so the next category is um is I mean they, they literally go unnoticed for decades. Um and they're the so-called closet narcissists. Right. And these guys are so hard to spot because they don't actively seek the limelight like the other types. They get their they get their, their sense of superiority and their specialness from associating with people who they consider to be special so you can see how that's very different from actually acting special yourself Mm. Um, so they often consider themselves to be the wind beneath the wings of another but just like all the other uh, types of narcissists behind closed doors they also engage in abusive behaviors and this lot um, often play the victim and that's a big part of of how they behave and they very often have episodes of depression as well Um, And the last type um, is the communal narcissist. And they're also known as the altruistic narcissist. Again, a tricky one to spot uh, because these people on the surface look like they're altruistic. So they're often involved in charities or on committees or they're they're do-gooders. And they get their sense of specialness and superiority from being um, the most caring person or the most kind person or the most giving person. But the difference between them and just being a nice, genuine person is that they're actually abusive uh, behind closed doors Um, and they're not coming from a place of charity at all, actually, but of pure self-interest. So they get their narcissistic supply, the thing that we were talking about, as the thing you're addicted to, and they get that from being seen as being a do-gooder.
1: Right, I say, yeah. It's amazing when you think about it. I mean, um, you know, the, as you say, the different sorts. There, again, uh, on a par with um, with you know my addiction. There are there were obviously different sorts of people in different addictions, and you can actually look the a bit. I'll be honest with you. If I had to um, look upon myself um, when I was in drink, I was the exhibitionist. I was the life and soul of the party. Mm. But. Um, Uh, I I could quite easily slot into the closet one where I would actually desperately try and pretend that I wasn't and I was absolutely fine and I was completely and totally sober and Mm. no one would ever know, but I would, like, switch from one to the other at the drop of a hat. So It's It's, um,
0: so interesting, isn't it, the
1: parallels? Yeah. So, um, anyway, so the obvious question to ask is, uh, obviously, you find yourself in a narcissistic relationship. You see through the charm. Why not just leave?
0: Ah, well... So we've already talked about how narcissism is an addiction in some ways to narcissistic supply. But incredible, though it might sound, a relationship with a narcissist is actually also an addictive one. So the person in the relationship with the narcissist actually becomes addicted to the relationship. And, and that's one of the reasons why it's it's so hard to leave. There are actually lots of psychological reasons specific to a narcissistic relationship, which which make makes it hard to leave. But But this addictive feature is a really, really important one. So essentially, the way that a narcissistic relationship plays out is is what makes it addictive. And it's all about brain chemicals. Right. So um, I'm sure you've heard of dopamine and serotonin, oxytocin, um, yep. noradrenaline, they kind of get banded yep. around. And, and these are the feel-good brain chemicals. So if you think about how um, people are addicted to their phones, for example, mm. so the pinging and the likes on Instagram yeah. and, and Facebook yeah. and all of that, all those things actually cause a burst of these feel-good brain chemicals, and that's what you actually become addicted to. So, And if you think about gambling, say, um, on a slot machine, mm. actually that's an even better analogy as to how narcissistic relationships become addictive through these brain chemicals. Um, because a narcissistic relationship always starts with what's called love bombing. I don't know if you've heard of that, David. Uh, I have, actually, yeah. So here, the narcissist will be ringing you up all the time. They'll be messaging you. uh, They'll be showering you with attention, uh, monopolising your time uh, and being the perfect partner. I mean, they'll be helpful and kind and they'll be hanging upon your every word and perhaps listening to your fears and your deepest insecurities. And usually, people feel like they've met their soulmate um, and they can't actually believe how perfect this person is for them. They often say that they instantly felt like they'd known them their whole life. Um, and the thing here is that the relationship progresses really quickly. It's much more intense than a typical relationship. It's much more, it's much more intense than a healthy relationship. Sure. Now, at this point, your brain is being flooded with the feel-good brain chemicals. And you're actually essentially on a high uh, during this love bombing phase. So that's the first step um, right. of the addiction. But what happens next is a stage called the devalue stage. And this is crucial. So it's very, very subtle to start with. And um, the narcissist will start by making uh, the odd throwaway comment or put down. Um, they might even uh, disguise disguise it as a joke or, or perhaps say that they're actually trying to be helpful to you. So um, something simple like, um, you know, are you sure you should be wearing that top? It's not the most flattering on you. I wouldn't want you to feel uncomfortable. You know, that kind sure. of thing. Yeah, very subtle. Very subtle. So what happens at this point is that your brain chemicals plunge at this point. So they've been on this all-time high. Suddenly they plunge and you'll notice your heart sinking. But because you're still madly in love with a narcissist from that love bombing phase, you kind of let it go and you find yourself trying to please the narcissist because you want to be love bombed again. So you start jumping through hoops to get that hit of brain chemicals without even realising that that's actually what's going on. And these right. are cycles. It, yes, it's quite, it's, it's quite intense. Mm. And, this, and, and these cycles of uh, love bombing and then devaluing, they actually repeat over and over again throughout the relationship. And this plays havoc with your brain chemicals. So if you think about it, if you were to have a winning streak and then a losing streak on a slot machine, say, yeah. you stay in the game because you're waiting for the next win. And gotcha, yeah. yeah. so these cycles, just like on a slot machine, can be short or long, but what they always are are unpredictable. So the length of the cycles and the sizes of the wins are unpredictable, just like with a, with a slot machine, just like with a narcissistic relationship. And it, it's that unpredictable nature of the cycles and the varying sizes of the wins that actually make the whole thing addictive. So there really are big parallels to be drawn there. And, and eventually what happens is the devaluing behaviours become quite pronounced. So you can, it can be, you know, from that little put down about the top, say, it's now yeah. silent treatments for weeks. Uh, it's name calling, it's open put downs and criticisms. They might withdraw completely from the relationship for a bit. They might flaunt other love interests in front of you. And it might even be physical abuse. And these are all examples of the sorts of things they can do. And remember, that different narcissists will do different things. But the victim still stays put Um, partially because the volume has been turned up on that abuse so slowly that they haven't even noticed it. And of course, because they're now actually addicted to the relationship. And that, that addiction actually has a name. It's known as trauma bonding.
1: Right. I know, I must admit, listening to you at the moment, I'm quite glad I'm single. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, so when the uh, narcissist does what they're doing, the love bombing and devaluing, etc., are they actually doing it deliberately? Is it sort of like something that they set out to do? Or is it just a complete and total, you know, they actually don't really know what they're up to?
0: Um, No, that's a really interesting question. Usually they don't know. Um, So their behaviour is actually just a way, uh, it's a a result of the way that their brains are wired. Um, And it's important to remember that their brains actually became wired that way when they were children, um, as a way of coping with their own difficult upbringings. So people often think that narcissists must spend hours plotting and scheming how to abuse others, but actually it's effortless um, and it's just a result of their hard wiring. But whilst it's not their fault as such, um, it's still abusive. So, you know, you can't cure a narcissist with more love or by trying harder or by giving more. It really is one way traffic in terms of a relationship. But, you know, you asked about awareness and, you know, although narcissists aren't generally aware of of how they're behaving, they do tend to be aware on some level of that low self-esteem that lies in the background. So there is some awareness there, but not so much um, of the behaviours right okay so um
1: obviously we've been through the main points of how to if you like identify a narcissist what other things actually give them away as being narcissistic are there if you like other sort of like you know clues you can look for
0: gosh there are so many behaviors which are typical um but i think something that underlies a lot of those behaviors um that's really worth looking out for is um a fundamental lack of empathy Um, Because those with narcissistic personality disorder, they have very low empathy. Uh, Developing empathy is actually a developmental stage, um, which they never reached uh, due to the way that their brains developed uh, during their childhoods. So... Interestingly, one of the red flags of this low empathy is is how a narcissist will treat their partner if they're ill. So they're usually completely disinterested uh, in looking after them, and they they certainly won't be uh, mopping your brow or bringing you soup when you're ill. And that's a that's sure. a great sign of of their low empathy. It's a really good one um, to look out for. But they can understand so whilst they can understand that someone might be feeling bad about something they can't actually feel it that's the difference between uh, you know someone with empathy and someone who doesn't have it they can't actually feel it so they can't actually put themselves in your shoes and actually feel your pain and that leads to a lot of their other abusive behaviors because if you can't feel other people's pain uh, you can exploit them and you can treat them badly um, without really caring about how they feel so You can never really have a a mutually loving, reciprocated, caring relationship with someone with NPD because their brain development means that they just can't do this. They can't care about you. And I think that means that ultimately um, their relationships do tend to fail. And of course, they end up in the divorce process, um, very often having been rejected by their spouse. So it's often the spouse that leaves them.
1: Right, I see.
0: "Mm -hmm." And it's actually in the divorce process uh, that those with narcissistic personality disorder really, really ramp up their abuse. And that, that's, of course, that's one of the reasons why we've written the books, um, to try to, to prepare the lawyer and the spouse of the narcissist for what's to come, because it really is extremely challenging to deal with if you're not prepared. My brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out now and is also available as an audio book. And for more resources, please do visit my websites, thelifedoctor.org and drsapriya.com.